0: Welcome to this bonus episode of Talking RSHE Ready with me Lisa Whitworth. Today I've managed to grab half an hour with Anne-Marie Christian who is an international and national safeguarding trainer, an NSPCC associate and an expert on the world of child protection and safeguarding to talk about how we respond in schools, the Ofsted review of sexual abuse in schools. So this is a topic that I'm sure many of you will be aware of. You may have read the report. You certainly will have seen it in the media. So it's something that we are all aware of. Some of you may be surprised by it. it. Some of you might might not. If you work with young people, you probably know that these issues are going on. But this is an opportunity to listen to somebody who's worked in this field for many years, um, bring her experience and her expertise so that we can learn from that. Yes, so I'm...
1: um a qualified social worker, qualified now 25 years, um, been working in child protection for at least 30 years, hence residential social work before. And also my mother was a foster carer, hence I am familiar with fostering children, etc. Um, and I'm now in the last 11 years, I'm an international independent safeguarding consultant. So I work with lots of organizations, both in the UK, national, four nations, and also across the world, in child protection, safeguarding, in the sense of educating, consultancy, training, raising the awareness. But also in a lot of that, I do um, investigations around, you know, reacting to things that have happened. So this topic is very kind of I've been doing quite a lot of post police um, investigations into peer on peer child on child harm. Um, And I've actually saw it throughout my career, to be honest, in cases coming to the front line. So I myself was a school-based social worker 22 years ago, and I'm familiar with how young people present in schools and also aware of primary in the sense of how that's, again, similar model in the sense of behaviours. So I'm here today to kind of give you an overview of the reality. It's quite a complicated subject. Mm-hmm. And I'm giving you from a professional perspective, but also my learnt experience in it, in Excellent. the sense of good practice. So yes, there's guidance, but actually, what what does it mean in real life?
0: Yeah, that's, so that's
1: what I'm do do. To say. No problem.
0: Yeah, thank you, Omri. So, so in so those of you that haven't read the review, because lots of people won't have read it because it's quite lengthy, and you know, we not all get I've got a chance to read these kinds of things. So they they talk to they've been in lots of schools, talk to 900 children, um, carry out interviews. Um, And in the review, there's some 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 quite stark statistics that probably don't surprise people if they work in schools or if they work in safeguarding. Um, 90 percent of girls and 50 percent of boys reported that they were sent explicit pictures that they didn't want to see either a lot or sometimes. As a statistic, does that does that surprise you, Amory, or is that or or do you think that that's underestimating it or? I,
1: I always believe in, with, with reports and, and research statistics, it's always a matter of what you've been, so the under-reporting, i.e. we appreciate what you know is what you've been told, but actually the people didn't contribute tells us there's more. Mm. So um, it doesn't surprise me because, especially since technology, so people say what's happened or changed in 25 years, of course the internet, but we then know the people who were doing it before potentially were doing it in a different way. We know that pornography has changed a lot in the last 25 years from it being on a shelf in a magazine to it being online. So therefore years ago, you know, young people could access it in the way they, you know, of course there was videos, DVDs, whatever it was, but um, I I appreciate now it's actually a click on the computer. Mm -hmm. So of course um, it doesn't surprise me because unfortunately There's lots of reasons why people may display or exhibit harmful sexual behaviours in the sense of, you know, deliberately done intentions to harm, or actually is it something they're not aware is harmful that they're doing in in, in, in an activity. Um, So it doesn't surprise me. And um, we've got to think here about children being boys too, as well as all the other protective characteristics that might come into light for some young people who, Still feel unable to talk in this conversation, yeah.
0: yeah. So I
1: mean, I say that, and um, I mean, you know, religious families, you know, um, where potentially by talking about such activity suggests that you sinned, or you know, you're not, you know, potentially is going to impact on your future in potentially you're not being pure. So mm-hmm. I, I, me talking, I'm just talking about the sense of belief systems yeah. in the barriers that we have for people about harm mm-hmm. as well as some families that are homophobic society being homophobic and boys not being able to talk about harm being done by another boy or have another girl mm-hmm. where again society says what you're complaining for rather than actually you've been sexually assaulted by a female mm-hmm. so I think it's complicated you can see but um, mm-hmm. it doesn't surprise me because I, I, the media see it as boy on girl when actually the reality is children
0: yeah. being
1: harmed by other children and I think mm-hmm. we just need to be very you know neutral in a sense of what a child is rather
0: than categorizing people in their little boxes. yeah because i think that the most disturbing for me the most disturbing part of the report is this idea of normalization of that kind of behavior that it has become such a part of young people's lives this exposure to explicit explicit sexual imagery that almost accepted and the exposure to sexist name calling that that was talked about in the report that 92% of girls and 74% of boys were you know were seeing that regularly or a lot um, that that is kind of is a normal part of 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 being a young person nowadays and I think and and I think the idea that that that's become normalized presents real challenges doesn't it like you said there are those barriers around cultural or you know familial groups but there are also barriers around the fact that it's not seen as a problem by young people. So how, and, do we, how do we get around that? How do we how do we challenge that?
1: So young people um, thinking about the average age of a child in school being the year ten or year you know sixth form, they would have been born two thousand and four, two thousand and two. I'm doing my maths vaguely. So those children would have been born into a world where the internet exists, you know, in a in a world where social media over their childhood has grown, tablets, internet, etc. So for them, they have grown in a situation where some of them might have seen their own parents or families being involved in potential posting pictures of themselves on the internet, hence semi-nude, bikini, whatever it might be. Or their celebrities, the people they look up to as role models also doing it. So they also get a bit of a mixed messaging what's seen as normal in the sense of acceptable. Because mm-hmm. I always say from a safeguarding perspective, what's acceptable and what's harmful And a lot of it sometimes, unfortunately, Lisa, comes down to people's perceptions they have about their own personal values, rather than society or self. Does that make sense? So that's why it's complex because for some people, think about it, example B, I'll give you two blatant examples. A family where a child is encouraged to have a sexual relationship, hence their boyfriend or girlfriend or partner can sleep round from the age of 14. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. to a, a family where it's forbidden to even talk about relationships until you're married, and you can, then you don't talk about it. So can you see already yeah. the difference in a family value of that being part of society or the norm in your family to actually it not? So we've got a cocktail of lots of things to consider mm. rather than one fits all, yeah? yeah. So um, that's why it is dangerous, because what we don't want is... The average child in our youth culture to believe that it is okay. However, we have to remind ourselves, I grew up in the 70s and as a teenager in the 80s, and I know that I grew up in an era where carry on films, you know, Benny Hill, you know, Page Three Girls, yeah you know, I talk to my daughters now, they're horrified. What do you mean, Mummy, yeah. there's a naked person? So we have to appreciate, you know, and I'm not justifying it, but I'm giving an example of comparing that to. That was our norm, and this, mm. do you understand? So yeah, absolutely. they're, they're not similar, but understand it from that perspective where it's shocking in the sense of, was that really acceptable back then? And all the misogyny kind of stuff comes out of that against expectations of mm. the wolf whistling to looking a certain way. If you don't look a certain way, you're not glamorous. And glamorous, what does glamorous look like in the sense of a young person today, you know, mm. when they watch pornography, nudity, body image, all those things that impacts on potentially semi-nude being okay do you
0: understand yeah yeah so it's what they're absorbing I mean I think the role of social social media as well and what they're seeing and what is their norm what what is in their world is is quite different isn't it to what we might accept as okay as adults and I I think there is there's a I think there's an important part here isn't there about listening to is is the harm being done is is it harmful for them do they perceive it as harmful or but you know it's interesting as you say
1: that um, for example we know so we're, we're human here in the sense of last summer there's a hot summer this might be a hot summer it's raining but we know in the sense of young people wearing shorts that's an example I'm giving you okay so we know as adults some shorts we look at being quite too short in our heads of wow that's awesome cheek in yeah. the sense of what we can see for young people that's fashion like an extension yeah. of your leg and, yeah. and to young people, it's, well, stop looking because actually I've got a right to be liberated here and have a good self image of myself and wear anything. Yeah. And the problem is you looking and actually thinking just because I'm showing it, it means you can look or actually take advantage of yeah. me. Yeah, so that's where I'm finding when I do speak to young people, I really get where they're coming from in the sense of, well, it just, I'm not giving you permission to do anything to me just by wearing this, which is yeah. absolutely correct. Mm. And that's where the misunderstanding comes in from the adults. Yeah, in us trying
0: to I think the, mes- the messaging about uh, especially women's bodies is very confused, isn't it? And there's lots of confusion about policing of women's bodies and what's what's acceptable and all that kind of stuff. And I think that is a really complex thing. I think maybe maybe where we're coming to with this is what we're really talking about is that, you know, the, the, the values that young people have and that what they see as acceptable and what they might see as harmful as opposed to what they see acceptable it's not necessarily about that. It's about, it comes back to consent, doesn't it? And actually when we're talking about seeing something you don't want to see, that's different, isn't it? To, you know, looking at Kim Kardashian's peachy bottom on the internet, yes, right? But that's not, yes. that's not the same. If you're being sent things that you don't want to see, that is, that comes back to the conversation about consent again, doesn't it? It comes, so under the definition, it comes under sexual harassment,
1: doesn't it? Because it's unwanted, um, you know, it's kind of um, potential information um, in the sense of unwanted attention in sexual way Mm -hmm. in the sense of um, without consent and it's you know conduct in a way that actually seen as sexual harassment so of course and and that's where the definition has changed again in the sense Mm of you know somebody who likes someone who's made a pass at them that's now seen as sexual harassment and it always has been don't get Mm -hmm. me wrong but we as young people would understand that I don't like you in that way get off me Mm -hmm. rather than you like me and you believe that I'm because we're friends you're going to try and kiss me now or touch me Mm -hmm. and actually you haven't asked permission, I've consented to it. So that in itself is kind of where we're coming from in Mm -hmm. young people's understanding of it to because I like them, I don't mind this, but I actually don't want to go any further. So you can see how really complicated this subject is for (laughs) us as professionals and young people in understanding all of it.
0: Yeah because I think there is a risk here isn't there that we're criminalizing quite quickly a lot of behavior that uh, and young people as a result of that 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 is going to be really problematic and I think there's been lots of conversations in the media haven't they I know that um uh, the head of Ofsted made a comment Andrew Spielman, Spielman made a statement about that that it wasn't a safeguarding issue if a student sent a, a uh, and then quickly kind of backtracked because I think maybe what she was trying to do was say that it is really complex and actually what we don't want to be doing is criminalizing young people I think that's what she was trying to say so so what's your t- your take on that as a in your in your experience that, that you know, the, we're talking about a complex issue actually we are uh, so muddy today
1: I can't find it now I'll find it in a bit but today I was you know you know the semi-nudes and the sharing nakeds which is the guidance that we've got yeah um and, and talking about young people so I know they talk quite clearly in there about for example youth produce sexual images experimental romantic sexual attention seeking or is it you know intent to cause harm in that sense or reckless use so we have to go below that in the sense of yes we know there are predators out there Yes, we know that there's people take advantage, who are motivated, but also there's an element where to some young people it's experimental, but they have to appreciate it's illegal because the mm. decent image part of it. So that's where the right conversation needs to be done in yeah. raising awareness. But what I have found interestingly enough Lisa is, since the first sexual violence and harassment guidance came out in December 17, I've seen lots of safeguarding leads across the country then feeling confident ringing the MASH, the multi-agency safeguarding hub, and in them ringing them about queries of harmful sexual behaviour about individuals, they then come to the attention of that person was already known because something had been reported at the local park or at the local cinema or at the local library. Um, it doesn't mean that person's in prison or demonised. It just means that there's more information about a per- an individual who's in the community, who's actually you know targeting people and eventually we'll get to the police kind of you know desk in that sense of sexual assault so that's why again that thing that was just said recently i think we have to appreciate the seriousness of it the impact it has on young people but also by
0: minimizing it it makes it okay yeah yeah and that's where that's where the the nuance of the Comment was I think was lost, wasn't it? That actually there is there is a you know there's got to be a balance between allowing people to explore their sexuality and all that kind of stuff and also keeping them safe from harm. And I think that that is always going to be a tricky balance for for us you know that work with young people to get get right. So so one of some of the reasons in the report that um, they talked about that the young people didn't didn't uh, report these incidents was that they felt that they would be ostracised by their peers, that adults would overreact. That they wouldn't be believed, which I think is the thing that I find the most worrying, is and that they would be out of control of the process. So, I think you know, from a safeguarding perspective, all of those things are not what I would describe as the safeguarding training I've ever had. So, you know, why why do you think that those are that those are the barriers that people are coming up against? Do you think that's to do with maybe previous poor management of reporting in schools, or what is that about? Do you think?
1: So we know um, a third of harm being done to children is done by someone they know, okay. So they know the person from the friend of a friend or they know them directly and the behavior they're doing to them, if they tell someone, potentially their friend will be in trouble, okay, and potentially they're not aware of, it could end up with a police conversation or even social care, Mm -hmm. right? So ultimately that you know for that person their loyalty lies first maybe with their friend Mm. in that emotional attachment to a friend and they put themselves second so that's why it's and also those stories in the press about rape victims I hate the word rape sexual assault in that sense of what the press is saying who cases are you know don't get escalated so a young person might be thinking I'm going to tell you this all of this and then potentially it won't go anywhere Mm. to they my friend, I don't want them to be taken in by the police, I want to protect them, they didn't mean to do it, or questioning did I contribute towards this, so all what you said there, they, are, they feel powerless in this, yeah. because as young children being under the age of 18, they know that we've got policies in place, they know that if they tell us something that suggests they've been harmed, regardless of by who, they then know we have to inform social care and the police and their parents so can you think again about for some children the impact that would have on them at Mm. home in their families Mm. as well as their peers as in you've got the police involved etc etc so you know I've seen ones from actual things happening outside the school setting of sexual harm hence consent questionable Um, young person then saying it wasn't and then young person, and then the whole year group playing against that the person who'd been harmed. Mm. You understand? So yeah. in the lives of the young people, it's overwhelming
0: mm.
1: in the sense of actually by doing this and sticking to it and, and following it through, I'm going to lose, lose my peers, mm. potentially bring the police in, be questioned. So there's a, a massive kind of massive bag that comes with this rather than it being a very small part of a child's you know conversation
0: yeah so which brings us on to the recommendations you know because you you saying that looking at the recommendations from the report I don't think they're going to go anywhere near and solving you know beginning to solve the the issues because the first one is is developing a more robust RSHE curriculum so making sure that the the relationship sex and health education curriculum is you know, very specific and explicit about what we mean by sexual harassment um making sure that staff are properly trained to do that and that i think is a really important part of the curriculum but the rest of the recommendations are about things like working with local service providers making sure that dsls have um s- protected time in order to deal with safeguarding better record keeping and then and then training i mean that i mean that's how do you, think that's, do you think that's going to do anything? Is that robust enough? So already DSLs are exhausted. Already
1: a DSL would be a senior leader who's got their day job, as well as the add-on of the safeguarding lead. Then came along mental health leads that I know is separate, but it still impacts on the DSL role. And obviously now we know um, with COVID that's also a massive you know, add-on. And we know with the rollout of RSHE, we know that we're going to naturally, by the nature of doing the whole school approach, we're gonna have more children talking in class and lesson about things happening to them or recognizing they need to tell someone.
0: Absolutely, so, so a lot it of it, so that trigger impact. of us educating the young people and saying, this, you know, if this made you feel uncomfortable, this is a harmful behavior, then you need to talk to somebody about it. And this is who you go going to talk to about it. That's gonna be the DSL that's gonna to come to the DSL in that school, isn't it? Absolutely, so. absolutely. So we know it's going to have a massive impact
1: on the capacity of that one person. Yes, there's a DDSL, a deputy, but going back to your comment there about protected time, already in Keeping Children Safe 2020 in Annex B, and also in, in um, they talk about the role of the DSL, and, you know, then having uh, appropriate funding and time to do the role, and I know the role is in more demand for lots of reasons, and therefore that one person's already, you know, exhausted in the sense of time limitation, so I wonder what that will look like, and I do know, I believe, they are looking at evaluating anyway revising the actual role of the DSL in the sense of the impact that all this will have on them, in and also the capacity of the referrals coming in, so yes, the local safeguarding partners, health, police, social care, but we know they statutory agencies and we contact them when we've got a concern. Below that, it's all about school, isn't it? Mm. So mm. that's about raising the awareness, the education. So you're left with 75% of it. The rest is done in an investigation by social care and the police. So it's still a big load on you. And again, training, the cases I've had from decades ago on this was, you know, are is the average teacher aware of the power dynamics in a friendship group? Are they aware mm. of? kind of the nuances that happen around um you know different classes different groups the kind of banter which again we've got to look into rather than just being harmless fun you know um are we aware of you know when a child sits next to somebody they may not want that person to sit with them so are we giving them kind of an, an expression of they can move if they need to move somewhere else in the class do you understand because mm-hmm. if a child got up and moved out they'll like well you know get back in your seat what are you doing seen as mischievous or disobedient rather than what was the cause behind why you wanted to get up so there's lots of we have got to be open-minded and think about if we're going to do this training we really got to think about it from you know when you do the register in the morning for example in the playground duty all of those different areas in your school rather than it being generic because every area is unique to how it will look in the sense of um a, the person who's been harmed, but the person who's actually harming.
0: You
1: yeah. understand? From yeah. the power dynamics, even on the mini bus, to when you go to a school trip to the residentials after school on the bus, it's continuous. Mm. And the ones I've had have been continuous from the classroom, the playground, home. You know, this person is pursuing
0: someone mm. where they continue to. This person's powerless can, because guess that. what? They're following them. They can do that 24 hours a day now with social media, can't they? So that pursuit of somebody can happen literally 24/7. So definitely. If 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 that if that if what would you like to see? So we're going to we're sort of heading towards the end of our time now. But so in terms of some some really effective things, what what needs to happen in schools for these things to be really seriously addressed, in your opinion? I
1: think we need to appreciate. the lived experience of the child and understand that they um are aware of potentially how you will react if they tell you something so it's how we pitch it where we're using child-friendly language like if someone's upset you someone's hurt you if someone you know, encourage you to do something or making you feel uncomfortable so or are you know is someone pursuing you in a way that they're they're harassing you so it's just language we use um, from a young age of if you don't want to you've got a choice not to mm-hmm. so by giving them the alternative and as they get older giving them kind of one liners to get out of situations, you know, I know the NSPCC have got a very good app called Zip It. you might have seen it, mm-hmm. um, it's on the App Store and Android and it's um, an app where you send somebody a gift potentially if they ask you a really awkward question online and it turns it into humor, but then it gives you a moment to actually stop and think rather than just reply. So it's understanding from the child's perspective and almost doing a rehearsal in the sense of, if ever you're in a situation when some, you know, so I heard of something called tag, you know, tell the person what they're doing or saying is offensive or upsetting you, you know, ask them to stop and get help. That's the tag model. So we need to create a whole school approach in people understanding it looks like in the sense of someone being intimidated or in fear of or someone who's actually harassing someone whether it's emotional neglect physical or sexual you know in that element yes it's sexual for this what we're talking about but the whole thing of someone being a a bystander an ally looking at actually are you okay there but not put themselves at risk and the person who's doing it is a coward we know that we know they're cowards they're doing it discreetly aren't they not to be caught so when you name ie are you okay you've actually stopped that moment, haven't you, from it escalating. So it's creating a really nice model in your environment where we talk about the leader, the bystanders, followers. And that's what Carleen Furman's research. So if you look at the Contextual Safe she Network, in her research, she did quite a lot of work around the dynamics within peer groups. And if we need to understand peer-on-peer peer harm, we need to understand what, can we, what we need to do to break up that cycle. You know, For some young people who've actually been in homes where they've seen um, they lack empathy, for example, of what they've only ex- experienced in their old aces growing up themselves, to people challenging that to think, actually, that's, you're upsetting them, that's not very nice. So introducing yeah. empathy rather than um, the opposite. So yeah, there's lots of conversation. There's very good resources. I'm sure you know quite a lot you are read, Lisa, but there's loads of resources. The sooner the better. So yeah. I know um, there's a very good author in Australia of in my international safeguarding called Janine Saunders, and she does really good books from the age of like three or four up around um, guidance, boundaries, respect, you know, um, no means no, you know, there's loads
0: of conversation, so I the younger we educate children we them Yeah, them. I do think the RSHE curriculum, now that we've got a key stage one to key stage four RSHE curriculum that covers consent and it covers respectful yeah. and healthy relationships. I mean, it, we, we're not in aren't we, it's only just being implemented in schools but I, th- I do think that over the next couple of years that that will start to address some of those issues that you just talked yeah. about you, about educating young yeah. people so they yeah. understand what is healthy and what is unhealthy in a relationship for example kissing
1: yeah so kissing so do our children taught at the age of four or five that actually your mouth is a private part potentially isn't it in the mm-hmm. sense of someone kissing you and how they kiss you so that's the sort of stuff we need to be thinking of in the kind of conversations from that young age and i know we like you said Hopefully, in the next few years, we'll be in a place where we will have more healthy conversations where it's actually no embarrassment; it's part of every day mm. that children can name be parts without the, you know, the shyness of it,
0: yeah. including families too in understanding yeah. that as well. Yeah, and I think that that wraparound approach to making sure that families understand, you know, is is really important, isn't it? But uh, quite challenging at secondary schools, I think, and that work needs to start early in primary schools. <laughs> Massive thank you to Anne-Marie for that today. Really insightful and interesting take on how we work with young people in schools and how we need to approach this as a topic in a sensitive way that we know is important to help those young people talk to those, the, the issues that they might be having. I'm really getting a picture of really what's going on for us in each of our schools. So this has been a bonus episode. So thank you for listening today. Um, the rest of the RSHE, Booking RSHE Ready uh, series will be running until the end of this summer term. So I hope you enjoy the remaining episodes and we'll catch up with you again, hopefully in September. Thank you for listening.